All right, this is Psalm 126. This is a song of ascents. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Beautiful words from the Bible. As a matter of fact, I actually had the last portion of that psalm on the door of my car before I, my uh, pickup truck, before I sold it here a few months ago. Just a beautiful psalm with a beautiful uh, spiritual applications for us. Uh, let's see here. Our sermon today is Ruth 4. It's verses 7 through 12, and it's entitled, I Eschew This Shoe. So here we go, starting at verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malone's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malone, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elder said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Now on the internet, there's a site called Reverend Fun. It's linked to uh, Bible Gateway, if any of you guys ever go there. It's a very good site for, you know, doing searches in the Bible. And the site itself, Reverend Fun, is run by a guy who makes cartoons out of Bible passages. And from time to time, I will send him an idea for a cartoon, and he may or may not use them. But uh, on several occasions, he has used some of the ideas that I've had in his cartoons. Back in 2004, which was just a couple years after I met the Lord, I submitted an idea to him for a cartoon based on one of the verses in today's sermon. He accepted it, and it was published uh, on November 3rd of that same year. Now, unless you read the verse and know what it's referring to, you'd never get the punchline. But after today's sermon, you should be all up to speed on my type of humor, well, at least as far as the book of Ruth is concerned. Things that are referred to in the Bible have importance. How often do we read a passage and not think about the individual words that make up the whole? But Jesus said that even the letters, even the smallest letter, and even the little markings on those letters make a big difference. They all have meaning, and they all are used to tell us something. Some of the Hebrew letters look so similar to one another that a mere brushstroke will change the word because the letter becomes different. The Hebrew letter D looks very similar to the Hebrew letter R. The Hebrew letter B looks like the Hebrew letter K. Others are very close as well. Just the smallest little marking can change the entire word. If these little marks are important, how much more important are the words which they comprise? If all of the information that God deems necessary for us to know about him, about his plans, and about Jesus are contained in a mere 1,189 chapters of the 66 books of the Bible, then how important is every single word that is contained there? Any moderately large dictionary or encyclopedia is going to have many more words in them than the Bible does, and yet they relay information which is of far less weight than that of the Bible. Surely then each word of Scripture is immensely important. Now here's a question for you. How many times are shoes mentioned in the Bible? Well, who cares, right? But in actuality, shoes have great importance in the Bible and what God is trying to convey to us. And from the biblical concept of shoes, there is literally volumes and volumes of information in commentaries about them. Societies have entire traditions concerning shoes, some of which find their origins right in the Bible itself. 
The answer is that shoes or sandals are mentioned about 35 times in scripture. And yet the 35 times that they are mentioned form a marvelous tapestry of human life and interaction, both between man and man and between man and God. All of that from just a few dozen references. Our text verse today comes from Matthew 3. It's the 11th verse. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The details, the details are where the excitement is. When you go home after a sermon, you're going to remember maybe two and possibly as many as four things that you heard. That's it. They've done studies and they know this. In all honesty, I'm sure that God is much more pleased if you remember two or three things about the precious details of his word than he is if you remember two or three things about irrelevant stuff that's added into sermons to make your church time more enjoyable. If you like the details of God's word, then what are you doing? You're showing him the respect that he deserves. He took all of this time to give us this word that tells us about himself. So we should dig into that same precious word. What a gift. What a treasure it is. After all, it is his superior word. So let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Three thoughts for you today. The first is the transfer is made. This is verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 begins with, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. Now the verses that we looked at last week showed us how Ruth's closest Goel, or kinsman redeemer, was afraid of ruining his inheritance if he acquired Ruth. And so he claimed that he could not exercise his right of redemption. But that wasn't correct. He could have. He simply refused to do so because Ruth was from Moab. And because of his failure to act, an ancient rite would now take place. The words, was the custom, are actually inserted by the translators because this rite is not specifically addressed in the law in the manner that it's used here. The rite, as stated in the law, only covers one aspect of what transpires. And so the custom is much more inclusive and is probably older than the provisions of the law itself. To understand this, as an example, what we might do is think about the use of lights on a car. Car headlights go back before any laws concerning how and when lights should be used. People turned them on when they needed them. But eventually, the law chose certain times when they would be mandatory. Motorcycles, for example, have to have them on all the time. In a car, we have to turn them on at a given time of the day. We have to use them all night long, and then we can turn them off at a given time of the next day. And then during certain weather conditions, we may be required to use them as well. But we also turn lights on a car when they are not required by the law, such as when we're in a funeral procession. And so what the law requires is only a portion of the custom of the use of lights. The same is true with what's now going to transpire. One aspect of it is noted in the law, but other aspects are based on custom within the society, or maybe because of tradition or because of some other reason. Verse 7 goes on, to confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. In America, when a legal matter is confirmed, it is usually signed and then it's notarized or it's stamped or given some other type of official seal. This is our legal way of confirming matters, whether they refer to marriage or to real estate or the making of wills or some other type of legal document. In ancient Israel, witnesses were called to the gate of the city, and that's the place where legal matters were resolved. And then the matter would be discussed and the decision would be made. And in order to confirm that matter, a sandal was transferred from one person to another. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, such a transfer was mandated for a person who failed to perform the duty of raising up the name of a dead brother for a widow. This partially applies to the matter of Ruth here. There in Deuteronomy, it says these words, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside of the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. 
But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate of the elders, exactly where we're having this going on right now, and uh, say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up the name of his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. What's shameful in this transfer in Deuteronomy is twofold. The woman was shamed by the man because he failed to do what he was instructed to do by the law. For all you know, she's ugly and he doesn't want to marry an ugly woman. And I'm not trying to be stupid here or anything. I'm just saying that may be the reason. Whatever his reason, now she has been shamed because of it. And the man has been shamed because he had to submit to allowing a woman to assume the requirements of the law in his place. And to him, that would be a very shameful act. The law gave the man the preeminent position in almost all matters, and some leaned to almost an incredible level in favor of the man, such as the right of jealousy when a man thought his wife had been unfav uh, unfaithful to her. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, take the time to go home and read Numbers chapter 5, and you will see exactly what I'm talking about. It leans so heavily in favor of the man that it is almost astonishing. Another example was that of when a woman was to have her hand cut off if she, in hopes of protecting her own husband, was to have grabbed at the private parts of another man. This is found in the exact same chapter of Deuteronomy that we're looking at. Listen to what it says. If two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of, of the one who is attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall not pity her. Well, this might seem harsh, she was only protecting her husband, right? But the significance of the spot, especially among the covenant people, was what mattered. Her actions could not be excused. In the case of raising up a, dead, uh, a name for a dead husband, when a man failed to perform the duty to the woman in the way that he should, he was as much harming the name of the dead husband as shaming the woman. It was a direct attack against the very same spot on the dead husband the point of procreation. That's why it's such a severe matter here. And so the law provided for the woman to respond by actively taking the very symbol of his rights over her, the sandal. After that, she was allowed to further degrade him by spitting in his face. This act was considered immensely degrading, just as it is today. So a quick study, if you go into the Bible and you just type in the word spit or spitting in the Bible on a, a search engine, you're going to see that instantly. It's a very degrading act. And as a final disgrace, the law said that his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. It was to be a permanent reminder to all people of his failure to meet the requirements of the law and that he had borne the disgrace which was granted to a mere woman to perform. He was thrice and permanently shamed because of his failure to act. In the law, the sandal went from the one who possessed the right to the one who should have received it. Knowing this, we know that it was the unnamed relative of Boaz who took off his own shoe and gave it to Boaz. This was the formal transfer of his right of redemption. In this, though, a form of grace has been granted because the man was not forced to bear the disgrace of his refusal to act. The reason why is because Boaz preempted the man by saying back in verse 4, which we saw last week, he said these words, There is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. Boaz graciously preempted any possible shame on the man by stating in advance that he was next in line, thus implying that he was willing to perform the duty. Instead of the name of the dead dying out and also shaming the woman, the name would continue on and the woman would not be shamed. Therefore, there was no need to call this portion of the law out before the witnesses. Knowing all of this so far, though, does not explain why the shoe is the means of transfer for legal matters. And I got to tell you, I think it would be a real shame for us to not know some of what the shoe symbolizes. So we'll take a real quick look at it. Throughout history and in many, many cultures, the shoe carries much of the same connotation. There are positives 
and negatives, but they all tie into the same symbolism. Because we're mobile creatures, the shoe symbolizes several things. First, it symbolizes motion to where we are going, okay? But the footprints behind us, which bear the marks of the shoe, are a reminder of where we've been. When our feet stop, that is our time of rest in our place of rest, and thus it is our place of possession. Our shoes silently wait for us at the door. When Moses and Joshua came into the presence of the Lord, they were told to do what? Take off their shoes, because another, a greater one, possessed authority over the land. Unlike the prints of the soles of their shoes, which were man-made, the footprints of these men were created by God, implying his mastery over them. When David claimed that he would be victorious over the land of Edom, he wrote these words in the 60th Psalm. He said, Moab is my washpot. Over Edom, I will cast my shoe. And Philistia, shout in triumph because of me. Today in the Middle East, it still has this connotation. When Saddam Hussein was overthrown, what did the people of Iraq do? They took off their shoes and they threw it at statues of him, signifying their renunciation of his rule over them. In any picture on the wall of Saddam Hussein, people took off their shoes and they hit it on there, saying, you're no longer our leader. We now no longer have you ruling over us. And then just a few years later, a guy named Muntadr al-Zaidi shouted, this is a farewell kiss from the Iraqi people, you dog. And what did he do? He took off his shoe and he threw it at President Bush during a press conference. Well, Bush was fortunate. He moved quicker than a bunny rabbit and he actually got out of the way and the shoe missed him. But shoes are also indicative of readiness to comply. When Moses was given the instruction for the Passover, he was told these words. Listen to what it says. You shall not let none of it, meaning the Passover, remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall, be, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. It was a time of motion and preparedness. It showed that where they were was no longer their home. However, from that time on, all the way through the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings, Deuteronomy 29 verse 5 tells us that their shoes never wore out. Never. They were always made by God to be ready for the walk before them so that they could comply with the Lord's movements until they came to the spot which was chosen for them. In America, when we want to evaluate somebody's character, what do we do? We say, walk a mile in his shoes. Only then can we know if we measure up to his standards or if we're capable of assuming the duties that he was able to perform, right? And finally, we have the idea of the dead man's shoes being those of a person at a funeral. They demonstrate that another person had to fulfill the de what the departed person could not. The pallbearers bear the dead man's shoes as they carry the man along for the last time. And I don't know if you remember uh, the last president that was buried, I think it was Reagan. Reagan was a uh, horse rider and he had these long boots that he wore when he rode his horse. And what did they do? They brought out the uh, presidential horse, which is known as Sergeant York. And he, they brought him out on display and they put Reagan's shoes on Sergeant York, this horse, and they turned them around backwards. And so as he was bringing them along, it was signifying that he could no longer bear himself. Somebody else had to bear him in his place. And it, the backward shoes were pointing to the fact that he was looking back on his troops. He would never lead them again. And so all of this is tied up in shoes. And we do things like this all the time in our own homes with shoes. And we don't even realize the cultural significance of shoes and how important they are in our own lives. You know, you go down to the projects and everybody has a new pair of shoes. They might not have anything else worth wearing. They might not have anything in their homes, but they wear new shoes because it's a cultural thing. It's an important aspect of their lives. In all, shoes represent the totality of the individual in many ways, both actual and potential. So in this exchange, then, the implication is that the right of walking on the land, which is to be redeemed, has been resigned and that the authority now belongs to Boaz. Because Naomi and Ruth are tied into the exchange, then the brother has given up his rights over them as well and his rights to all of their possessions. He has no authority to place his foot into their doors from this point on. And finally, the handing over of the shoe demonstrates his inability or his refusal 
to meet the requirements of the law. All of this is implied in this simple act of handing over a shoe to Boaz. Verse 7 goes on, and this was confirmation in Israel. The words here in the New King James Version lack the force of the original. The Hebrew says, ha teuda, the confirmation, not a confirmation. So if your Bible has a there instead of the, go ahead and write the next to it. The handing over of the shoe was the testimony because of the significance of what the shoe is. The transfer of the shoe was sufficient evidence in all ways and for all such cases. Even the King James Version got that wrong. They put a testimony, not the testimony. So go ahead and put that in there that it is the testimony. This is the official signed document which is being transferred. Verse 8, therefore the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. Knowing already that Boaz is willing to redeem and that he can redeem, the man states out loud in the presence of the witnesses the words, lach, buy for yourself. Verse 8 continues, so he took off his sandal. His integrity is maintained because of Boaz. Ruth could have gone to him first and he could have, she could have insisted on her right of redemption and then the law would have applied if he refused to fulfill his obligation. But because of Boaz and the tactful way he has handled this entire matter, there was no loss of face. There was only the imparting of grace. He took off his own sandal and he willingly and legally made the transfer over to Boaz. Who is qualified to fill this shoe? I wore it in the past, but I can wear it no more. There was something that I needed to do, but I could not. Someone take it, I implore. I could not meet the law's requirements. And so the right to the land is no longer mine. I must now step back from the inheritance and cede it to another. I must decline. Surely there is one noble man who will take this shoe from me and accept the right to fulfill the necessary redemption and this shoe fill, one who is worthy in these people's sight. I know that there is one who by all means will this right of redemption gladly fulfill. Our second thought, the purchase is finalized, which is verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, and Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day. Again, as was noted in verse 4 last week, the 10 witnesses that Boaz called together are representatives for all of the people. Regardless of how many people were there actually present, whether it was 10 or 50 or the whole town, these 10 testify for all. To them, he acknowledges that he is both qualified to redeem and he is willing to redeem. Now, I want you to keep trying to think, who do these 10 picture? Because they picture somebody in the Bible. And if they represent all of the people, then what does that mean? Okay, verse 9 continues, that I have bought all. The word for I have bought is the word kaniti, which is from the word kana. It means to buy or to acquire. The, this form of this word, kaniti, is used five times in the Bible. Two of them are in this account today, and two of the others actually tie directly in with what this account pictures. The first is when Eve had her first child, Cain. She said these words, Kaniti esh et Yehovah, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Because of this, she named her son Cain, which is a play on the word Kana, which means to acquire. Another time that this word is used is when Joseph said to the people of Egypt, indeed, I have bought Kaniti, you, and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. It's from Genesis chapter 47. If you go back and you watch both of those sermons, you may be able to figure out what this portion of the book of Ruth is picturing in advance of our last sermon. Verse 9 continues. That was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malone's from the hand of Naomi. Everything that belonged to Elimelech and also his sons, Kilion and Malone, has been purchased. The order of the names of the sons, though, are reversed from chapter 1. There it listed them as Malone and Kilion. But now Kilion is mentioned first. Boaz, knowing the family, has named Kilion first, showing that he was the firstborn. And that's important if you know who Malone and Kilion picture. Regardless of the birth order, though, because of the death of all three sons, the entire scope of the inheritance that belonged to Naomi has been transferred. It is from her that this purchase is made. Verse 10. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malone, I have acquired as my wife. The word moreover must have been almost impossible for Boaz to utter. 
His heart was probably beating so hard that it was difficult to speak. The first time that his eyes glanced on her in the field, it was apparent that he was attracted to her. Now he has the joy and he has the pleasure of announcing that she would be his wife. Interestingly, though, he calls her Ruth, but he again calls her the Moabitess. The Bible is asking us to not forget that this woman is a Gentile. This isn't a mistake, and it is not an unnecessary addition, but it's a reminder. After this, he notes that she is the widow of Malone. Verse 10 continues, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Though a Gentile, she was the wife of Malone, and so through her, the name of the dead will be perpetuated through his inheritance. This ties the name to that which the name is entitled under the law. The word dead here is singular, though. It's not plural. However, in verse 1-8, it was plural. There it said, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have, with the, uh, as you have dealt with the dead plural there, and with me. That was when Naomi spoke to her two daughters-in-law, and the word dead was plural. Now it's singular. All three, Elimelech, Malone, and Kilion, are combined into one singular rather than individually. Once again, very important to understand. All three of the names will be linked together through Ruth in a distinguished and loving manner for future generations to remember. These hints are not at all unimportant, but they reflect a greater plan of redemption which is prefigured by this wonderful story of life and love in Bethlehem. Verse 10 goes on, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren. Boaz again mentions the name of the dead, but this time it's tied to his brethren. Not only will the name be raised up for the entitled inheritance, but it will also be raised up among his brethren. This means that the Israelite heritage is preserved, and yet it's preserved through a Gentile. Now think of the irony there. Now think of the church. Verse 10 continues, and from his position at the gate. And finally, in addition to the inheritance and the heritage, his name is being raised up for his position at the gate. Literally, it says the gate of his standing. The rights and benefits of all that the gate implies will remain secure. The legal aspects of the name of the dead remain secure through a Gentile. Keep thinking, why? Why is this story here? Verse 10 continues, you are witnesses this day. The transaction has taken place. The formal announcement of a marriage has been proclaimed and it has been witnessed not by just two or three witnesses, but by 10 and by any others who had come in and out at the same time and stopped to uncover their ear. The matter has been published. Boaz has met the requirements of the law and he has carried through with the accomplishment of his promise. In chapter 1, Naomi, during her great time of distress and anguish, had bid farewell to her daughters. At that time, she pronounced a blessing upon each of them. She said these words, The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. The blessing has come true for Ruth. She has found rest under the wings of Boaz, and together they have found rest under the wings of the Lord God of Israel. Orpah was not excluded from what has happened here because she was inherently unworthy, but because she willingly, willingly chose the path that she's on. That is a perfect picture of free will here because God does not arbitrarily select some for salvation and some for condemnation. He leaves the choice up to us and it's all being seen right in these passages right here. People willingly must call on Jesus Christ because if they don't, they will never be saved. And people willingly reject Jesus Christ and then they are not saved. It is not God forcing it on people. Don't forget that. That's all being seen in these beautiful pictures right here. I have purchased it all in one fell swoop. Everything is included in the deal. This will be published as the greatest scoop. The sandal in my hand is the needed proof and seal. The right of redemption was passed to me and I accepted the right and also prevailed. It has been witnessed by all 10, you see. I have qualified in what the law detailed. And so to me goes the title and the deed. To me goes the inheritance and the bride. Yes, I am the holy and chosen seed, the narrow path that leads to heaven's pastures wide. Our third thought today, may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem, which is verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. With their approval, the matter is now established. 
None have challenged the proceedings, and rather all who gathered, both elders and any others, were in agreement. And so in agreement, a blessing upon them is pronounced. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. The name of Jehovah is pronounced once again over Ruth. Naomi blessed her in the first chapter, Boaz in the second, and in the third, Boaz noted that she was blessed of the Lord. And now again, all those present heap a blessing in the name of the Lord upon her. Specifically, they tie her to Rachel and Leah, noting Rachel first, but Rachel's the younger one. And there are several reasons for putting her before Leah, even though the people of Bethlehem are actually descendants of Leah. Rachel was the beloved of Jacob. She was the first desire of him as a wife, right? She also died and was buried not very far from where these people are, in Ephrata, right where these people lived. And so she would always be on their mind as a reminder. So they're placing her before Leah. And finally, who Rachel pictures in the story of redemptive history explains why she would be named first in the Bible. To understand that completely, you'd have to go back and watch all of the sermons of uh, Rachel and Leah's uh, lives. But Basically what it is, is Rachel pictures New Testament grace instead of Leah, who pictures people under Old Testament law. Okay, as long as you understand that, then you can see why Rachel would be named first. To Boaz, these two women of note are being introduced as a hopeful comparison to Ruth, a wife for his house and a mother to his household, as we see next. As verse 11 continues, the two who built the house of Israel... These two women are credited with building the house of Israel, meaning the nation itself. This word translated as build is the Hebrew word bana. It's the same word used to describe the building of Eve, believe it or not, from Adam's rib. So there's a hidden play on intent here. From this word bana are de derived the Hebrew words for son and daughter. And so it indicates the building of a house through children. It's spelled with three Hebrew letters, Beit, Nun, and He. Okay, and this is important to understand. The, the, the words in the Bible are all pointing to other things, and they're constructed for a specific reason. So it's made of these three letters, Beit, Nun, and He. Beit means house. Nun means continuance or an heir, a subsequent generation, in other words. And He conveys the meaning of behold, as when something great is revealed. It also signifies breath, such as you breathe out when you behold something great. And it can even refer to the breath of life. Their blessing is that Ruth will continue to build the name of the house of Israel through subsequent heirs, just as Rachel and Leah did when they built the house of Israel. This blessing then is literally fulfilled in her great-grandson, David, and in her greatest descendant, Jesus. It is reflected in the word of the Lord to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where it says these words. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build, that word benah, a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And one final note of curiosity is that the word Two, when speaking of Rachel and Leah, is masculine. It's not feminine, even though it's speaking of the two women. In chapter one, there were nine instances of gender discord. Then there was another one in chapter three, and this is the final instance of gender discord in the book of Ruth. Why are they there? What is God trying to tell us by using masculine when speaking of women and using feminine when speaking of men? Why would he do that? We're going to find out. Verse 11 continues, and may you prosper in Ephrata. The words here are actually not as clear as we have them in the English. And so it isn't really known for certain whether this is speaking about Ruth, may she prosper, or Boaz, may you prosper. It simply says, and make, va'ase chayil be'ephrata, and make prosper in Ephrata. Either way, this uses the same word, chayil, which was already used to describe Boaz in verse 2-1, and it was used to describe Ruth in verse 3-11. It indicates virtue and wealth, and not just material wealth, but wealth in all aspects of life. And so here is found another play on words. The name Ephrata means fruitfulness. Therefore, it is a blessing for great prosperity in the place of fruitfulness. 
I mean, we've gone through, what, four, four verses maybe? And we've had pun after pun after pun. It's wonderful what God is doing here. He's showing us all these little snippets of other things, and he's throwing in this beauty that's so missed when we read it in the English. Verse 11 continues, And be famous in Bethlehem. This verse finishes with the blessing that they will be famous in Bethlehem. The Hebrew here is Ukera Shem Be Bethlehem, and proclaim name in Bethlehem. In this, it means that when people speak about the famous folks of Bethlehem, they will be included in the list. Surely, this has been literally fulfilled in the mouths of God's people now for thousands of years. Verse 12, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Well, these words go directly back to chapter 38 of Genesis, which is one of the most remarkable passages in the entire book of Genesis as to what it pictures. Ruth, like Tamar, was denied her rightful justice until she personally came forward to claim it, just as Tamar did. Where Judah failed toward Tamar and was forced to state, she is more righteous than I, Boaz proved his righteousness in doing what another would not do and fulfilled his obligation as the next closest relative to Ruth. Perez was born to Tamar, the son from Judah and Tamar, by Judah, okay? And he was used by God as a picture of Christ to come. If you watch that sermon, you'll understand what Perez pictured. But he also literally is Boaz's ancestor as well. The blessing upon these two people by the people of the town is an acknowledgement that despite Judah's superstition concerning Tamar being a bad luck omen, she turned out to be a blessing and the mother of a noble house. Likewise, the closer relative to Ruth is being given an implicit rebuke. They're kind of chiding him for not fulfilling his obligation. He was superstitious that the marriage to Ruth would be the cause of his death, right? And so he backed out of it. And he backed out of redeeming the land, lest he marry this woman and die. So the townspeople are blessing Boaz, and at the same time, they're rebuking the Goel. Their blessing is that the same prosperous name which Tamar had been granted would be granted to Ruth also. In this union, we see the continuation of the very, very interesting, what I would call bed tricks, which are detailed in the Bible, which have led to very great things. The first was way back when Lot's two daughters got him drunk and they slept with him, if you remember that story. The second was when Laban switched his daughters on Jacob and gave him Leah instead of Rachel on his marriage night. And then you had the third one where Tamar posed as a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law Judah. And the fourth was when Ruth crept silently into the threshing floor of Boaz in order to request redemption. All four of these are found tied together in this one story that we're looking at right now. Lot's bed-tricking older daughter bore a son named Moab, who was an ancestor of Ruth. Jacob's bed-tricking wife Leah bore Judah, who was an ancestor of Boaz. And then Tamar's bed-tricking of Judah likewise led to Boaz. And Ruth's bed-tricking of Boaz has resulted in her marriage. This son who is going to be born to them will have four unique events which led to him, and in turn, meaning all of the names involved in all of those previous bed tricks, are going to lead to King David and then to Jesus. What seems like somewhat scandalous or possibly even immoral occurrences to most people have been used for a good purpose and a good end. The stories have been misunderstood and they've been unfairly maligned over the centuries when in fact they have been told for a much, much more important reason than merely teaching against perceived immorality. Verse 12 finishes with these words, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. The blessing is pronounced and it finishes with these happy words for Boaz. He's an elderly man who will have a young and beautiful bride. He has proven himself faithful both to the letter and to the spirit of the law, and he has been blessed by his people in the name of the Lord. Now we're closing in on the final details of the book of Ruth, and in the very near future, we're going to look at how all of them picture other things, great things in the history of redemption. The marvel of the Bible is that it contains every single thing necessary to have a personal relationship with God. This is lacking in nature, and it can only be revealed by him personally through special means. And those special means have come to pass and they have been compiled into what we call the Holy Bible. This book shows us the great love of God for us and what he did to bring us back to himself and to a place of idyllic perfection. 
that you can go to someday if you know how to gain access to it. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you've never made a commitment to Jesus, the one who can grant you that right of entering heaven's paradise, I'd like you to give me another minute to explain to you how you can. The Bible says that we have a problem in our lives, that we're separated from God. Everybody likes to nowadays say that all paths lead to God and that, you know, all religions are the same, but this is not true. The problem in man is sin. It doesn't matter what religion you're in. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist. It doesn't negate the fact that we have sin in us. It is there, and anybody, unless they're a fool, will not deny that they have done something wrong. They've lied. They've thought bad thoughts. They've done something which is separated from them from God. And because God is infinite, we can't go back before our sin and undo it. There's this bridge this or this gap between us that we cannot bridge. And so what God did is he came out of his infinite state and he united with humanity in the womb of Mary. So he's fully God. He's God is his father and he's fully man because Mary is his mother. He is the God man. It is the incarnation. And what did he do? He came and he lived this law that you and I cannot live. All pictured by this story right here in the book of Ruth. All of it's pictured right here. He gave up his life, his perfect life in exchange for our sins. And to prove that his death was satisfactory to take care of our sin debt, he came back out of the grave because he had no sin of his own. So not only is our sin nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ and it's washed away forever, but because we enter into Christ by faith, he came out of the grave, we are guaranteed eternal life. It cannot be taken away from us. It will never be lost. Once you move from Adam to Christ, it is done and it is forever. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul asks us to do something so simple. It's a stumbling block. People walk right over it and don't realize it. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's what God wants. He wants your faith that his son has done everything necessary to reconcile you to him. And if you do that, you will be saved. So I'd ask that you would just take a moment, if you've never done it, bow your head and ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and to be your savior. And he will, in fact, save you. And he will, in fact, take you to that heavenly paradise which is prepared for his people. Okay? Our closing verse today comes from John chapter 5. It's the 36th verse. He says these words. This is Jesus speaking. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now try to tie that back to Boaz. The works that he did were sufficient to finish what needed to be done. And Jesus is saying that this is going to be fulfilled in me. In fact, all of scripture, Jesus said all of scripture points to me. It's all about what I am doing in human history. So keep that in mind. Keep thinking on who these people picture and what this story is trying to tell us. We've got next week's sermon and then after that we've got one to close things out. But it is just a wonderful, wonderful story. Even without the pictures of what it's showing us, it's beautiful, isn't it? The details are just astonishing. All right, next week is going to be Ruth 4, 13 through 17. It's entitled, A Restorer of Life. That'll be our 12th Ruth sermon. And I'll tell you, as I have each week during these Ruth sermons, that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. He knows your trials, your troubles, and your woes, just like he knew all about Ruth's trials and troubles and woes. He never left her. He's there with you through them. So cling to him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem today is called, I eschew this shoe. Shoe dooby doo Now, this was the custom in former times. In Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging, to confirm anything in those climes, including even a marriage arranging. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was confirmation in Israel of a matter between one another. Therefore, the close relative to Boaz said, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal and gave it to Boaz instead. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses that I have bought this day all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malone's from the hand of Naomi. It has now come my way. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malone, as my wife I have acquired, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, today this has transpired, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren in any such way, and from his position at the gate, 
you are witnesses this day. And we and all the people who are at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses here in Bethlehem, the house of bread. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two of them who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah in days gone by because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman, now the apple of your eye. There in that same town of Bethlehem, as we know, came the Savior of the world, our Lord Jesus. He came without pomp or a flashy show. Instead, he came and looked like any of us. The stories that we see in the Bible's pages are given to show us hints of him. God has marked out his plan for the ages and done it in places like the little town of Bethlehem. In these stories, we can relate so well because they can fit the lives of any of us. Such is the masterful way the Bible does tell of the marvelous workings of God in Jesus. And so we thank you, O God, as we live out our days, reading your word and giving you all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, Lord, thank you for this story. Thank you for this beautiful story of love and redemption. And uh, today's words were a little more complicated maybe than a couple of the past sermons, but I know that you are pleased when we search out your word and when we look to the details and we try to find out why you're telling us certain things that you're trying to tell us. And Lord, I thank you for this word. Talking about it before uh, the service today, how difficult it is in some ways, but you open our eyes to these things and you lead us down paths of righteousness for your sake. And uh, certainly you are there to, uh, in hopes of us searching out your word. And you're not hiding it from us. You're, you're wanting to reveal it to us. And so help us as we open the word and to uh, search it out. And if there's something that we can't figure out on our own, then give us other people to help us uh, search it out together. But in all things, help our doctrine to be pure and not to deviate from it or to come to incorrect conclusions. Don't let us do that, Lord. Keep us on the right path of your word. Keep us focusing on Jesus. And we'll be sure to give you praise and glory and honor for it. And Lord, you know that there are a lot of people that are traveling right now in the uh, church. And uh, uh, we would ask that you would keep them safe, uh, get them to where they're going safely, help them to have a good and fun time while they're uh, there and bring them back here safely as well. Lord, we thank you for everything you've done for us in the week behind us. And we look forward in expectation of great things in the week ahead. How wonderful you are to us. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. We get the uh, instructions for the Lord's Supper right out of the Bible. You take them out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which, by the way, I started typing the devotional for 1, chapter, 1 Corinthians 11 today. We're still in chapter 10 for another eight days, but I type them eight days in advance. So uh, we're going to get into 1, chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with those devotionals, and if you read them, you'll learn a lot more about the details of you know what we do each week here, along with a lot of other very important stuff. What a chapter to look at. But uh, right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes these words for us. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, uh, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam, Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So let's take a moment and just consider that. Talk to the Lord about our life in the week behind and the week ahead. 
body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come forward and to take this Lord's Supper, and to communion with you. And uh, Lord, help us to be right in your presence. On our own, we're not able to do it. So be with us and help us to do that. And help us to have that joy in our hearts, even despite the trials that we're facing and the family troubles and the uh, maybe financial troubles or whatever we're facing as an individual here in this congregation, anybody that may be taking communion with us, that you would just be with each one of us and help us to uh, just honor you through the trials and to proclaim you to others and to make sure that uh, uh, you are glorified in all things that we do. We do love you. We praise you. We want to give you glory for all that you've done for us. We do so in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his life in exchange for ours. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. Amen. Amen. Amen.